0: It is such a wonderful wonderful morning for us to be here even though it is so cold outside and they're projecting all this snow and then freezing rain and we're just kind of everybody's coming a little bit feeling like just Ooh, cold but how quickly we warm up once we get together we can be very thankful for the heating system that we have we can be very thankful that it is a comfortable temperature in here but i'm confident to say that even if it wasn't Thus, the fact that we are gathered together to, in, in one accord to study God and to worship from His Word, study from His Word and worship His name, praise Him, that, that would in effect warm us up, warm our souls. This morning, I would like you to turn to your Bibles back to the book of Colossians. If you were not here last Sunday afternoon, we were, I gave a lesson out of the book of Colossians. Uh, it is uploaded online. If you have the opportunity, I would encourage you to go check that out because we're going to kind of pick up where we left off and finish up a thought that we started Sunday afternoon. Now we talked about Sunday afternoon, we looked in Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 17 where, where we read, Whatever you do in, the, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to, through God the Father. Now, we are, we are going to pick up right where we left off, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to read from this passage, Colossians 3, we're going to read verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Starting in verse 18, we read, "...Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord." Fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as the Lord as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong. Which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, this, uh, see if this thing's going to cooperate today. It is. This morning, we're going to focus on the home and family side of, of this, this passage. It goes into, a, uh, into some other things, but we're going to really focus on this idea of the home and of the family. And maybe that's one of the first things that we did notice about these passages. Paul is talking here about reciprocal relationships. What that means is he's talking about relationships that both make up a whole. We have the husband and the wife, the parent and the child, even the master and the servant. But not just that they make up a whole We're reading about relationships that are in equality, that are equal to one another. If we remember Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, when Paul said there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now what this means is that the duty is also equal. That is to say, it's never just one-sided. It's never just left fully up to the man to do everything, or fully up to the woman, or to the master, or to the slave, or to the parent, or the child. And in Paul's day, this was a very, very controversial thing to say. Because women were not treated with the same rights as men, especially in the Roman Empire, which ruled most of the land at this time. So while so many in the world today do view Paul as a chauvinist, it could hardly be farther from the truth than what he was saying. We see that his, pur- his purpose was neither political nor was it economical. He was looking simply or he wasn't, excuse me, he wasn't looking simply for women's rights to vote. He wasn't looking simply for women's rights to equal pay. He was looking for something much, much deeper than that. Paul was looking to encourage all Christians, male, female, parent, child, master, slave that you are to stay in character. And now notice here some things that that you might also have picked up on. Notice in verse 18. At the end of the verse it says, as is fitting in the Lord. Then skip on down to verse 20. Towards the end of that verse, it says, as is well-pleasing to the Lord. Verse 22, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, as for the Lord. Verse 24, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And chapter 4 and verse 1, a master in heaven. The Colossians, just as we are today, were reminded over and over and over again that they are in the Lord. They just talked about how they had put on a new self, and they were essentially reminded that in everything they do, in word or in deed or in everyday relationships and duties, they, just like us, were to put on the Lord. They were to put on kindness. They were to put on love. Joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. They were to put on all these things, not just to pick and choose, but everything that they did. And so that's why last Sunday's sermon, that's why the Sunday afternoon sermon is so important, because it's the beginning. It's the cornerstone teaching that builds us up into strong relationships. Do all in the name of the Lord. And this morning, I don't plan to completely dive into everything, as I said, uh, uh, that the Bible has to say about all of these. And I don't plan to dive into everything the Bible has to say about the family. But I do want to spend some time considering this idea of the Christian home and the Christian family. And starting off, I want to make the point that there is work that we all must do. Just because we are equals doesn't mean we have the same commands. This is quite evident here when we see that com- the wives are commanded to be to subject themselves or to submit to their husbands in verse 18. This word submit is the word hupotasso in the Greek and it literally means to subject to or obey that is the the. The meaning of, of that word. If we go back into the Greek dictionary, to the, the passages that that go along with it, that's use this word in every instance. It's using this idea to become subjected to, or to be obedient to. But now, like this passage, like any other passage of the Bible, we must remember that hey, we have to understand it in light of the whole. We can't just pick and choose one passage, say that this means this, and have it contradict something else. So back in Acts chapter 5 verse 29, it clarifies that while women are to be subjected, subjecting themselves to their husbands, they are to remember that God must come first. We talked about this in class a little bit. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God <laughs> rather than men. But this command seems to cause so much trouble. Paul just wants women under control, right? Paul wants to hold women back. He wants to... Put them where they belong. That's a lot of the world seems to kind of view Paul's teachings on these things. That's not at all what he was saying. I want to think about just for a second that it isn't just wives that are commanded to submit. As Christians, we are commanded to submit to the government. In Romans 13, verses 1 through 5, I'm going to flip over there real quick. Romans 13, verses 1 through 5, we see that, that we do have a command that we, as all Christians should, to be submissive to the government. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed all receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the saints. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. So we see this idea that we are to be subjective to the government, and and for the most part... We don't have a problem with that. Okay, I understand. We Obey the laws of the land. Be in subjection to the government, to the governing authorities. But we also have other passages that remind us of this. First Peter chapter two, verse eighteen. In First Peter chapter two, we are told to be submissive to our masters. Now, in this day and time, there was the concept of slavery, and it was still prevalent. People understood that that was a common thing for there to happen to be slaves. And nowhere in the Bible does it show that slavery was evil, but it does set a lot of guidelines on how slavery should be done and how masters should treat their slaves, how slaves should respond to their masters. But we can also understand that this even applies to us in a sense of our our bosses, our employers, those that we that we subject ourselves to on a daily basis in in in, in our work. In First Peter chapter two and verse eighteen. Says servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Then we turn over a little bit further, still in First Peter. Let's go to chapter five, and we're going to look in verse five. Here we read, "You younger men, likewise, be subject to be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble." So in this passage, we see that we are to be subjective, or being subject or submissive to our elders. And even in this passage, it gives the idea that we are submissive to one another. We are to submit to one another. And so I bring all this up because submission, in a Christian's life, it shouldn't be something that's completely foreign to us. We should understand a little bit what submission is. And when as wives, they should already be in the habit of of submission in some forms. And all these things go to help us understand exactly what that submission is. Think about it for a second. Does God desire us to be mindless slaves of the government that can't speak up, that can't express our concerns, our thoughts? Does he expect us to be imprisoned behind these shackles of submission to the government? Well, of course not. Of course not. He, he understands that, that in submission to the government doesn't mean that we are just going to blindly follow everything they tell us to do and that we have no say whatsoever in anything. That's why we have the luxuries that we have in this country to do things such as vote. Instead of that, instead of looking at submission as some sort of bondage that we go into, we need to understand that submission involves a great deal of faith. A great deal of humility, a great deal of love, and a great deal of patience. Because it involves you following the instructions of another that is not perfect and is going to make mistakes. Again, we talked about this in class this morning, but in first Peter chapter three, first <clears throat> Peter chapter three, and in verse five through six, we read about Sarah and how she is described as a submissive woman. In verse 5 it says, For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands just as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord You have be- and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. We talked again this morning about just what it was that Sarah did in obedience to, to Abraham in in calling and telling King Abimelech that she was she was his sister, it wasn't entirely a lie. She was his half sister, and she might have looked at that and thought, "This isn't right. This isn't the, the right thing to do." But she put her faith and her trust in Abraham, submitted to him, and she was rewarded for that. In the New Testament, she was rewarded for for the way that she trusted not in Abraham. She didn't trust entirely in what Abraham did. She was obedient to Abraham. She put her trust in God. As husbands, we would do really good to remember that submission is not something that God commanded to be done to show the husband just how great he is. It's not something commanded to be done so that we we can have this feeling that God really has put a whole lot of trust in us that we're going to make all the right decisions. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. Because in in the same chapter in verses 1-4 through of 1 Peter, it says, "...in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold or jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart." with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Submission is not for man. Submission is to show God how magnificent and how worthy He is. And you know what? That had better put some pressure on us as husbands. On us as men. That had better put some pressure on us, because we should be striving to be someone that they can submit to. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11, we read that we are to encourage one another. But how often is it that we discourage our wives from doing the very thing God has commanded them to do? That's why Paul's next words here in Colossians 3 and verse 19, are they make so much sense to us. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. These words... You are not being very submissive right now. These were the ignorant and the reckless words of a young man to his young wife that I've had the sometimes unfortunate opportunity of knowing for the past 29 years. These were my words to Holly. You are not being very submissive right now. As ignorant as that was, it reflects the the thought process of many people in the world today, especially many husbands in the world today, we are told in Ephesians five verse twenty-three. Let's turn over there. Ephesians chapter five verse twenty-three. We're told that we're the head of the household, and I wonder sometimes if that doesn't give us this big head complex. In Ephesians chapter five. In verse 23, we read, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Sometimes I wonder if we read that and we don't kind of feel like the son whose father has gone away on a trip and he says, You're in charge while I'm gone. And what's that son do? Let's his head get filled and blowed up. And he's like, I get to boss people around. I've seen this in my own children. He's like, I'm the big man in charge. This passage, though, this passage, and in this passage, Paul is making an analogy. He's making an analogy between the first Adam back in Genesis and the second or the symbolic Adam that we see in Jesus. And he's likewise making an analogy between Eve and between the bride of Christ, the church. So let's skip on down here to the the latter part of this passage in verse 32. In verse 32, he says, "...the mystery is great... But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Then notice in verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it as she respects her husband. One thing that we see in this passage, that becomes abundantly clear, is that as the husband, we ought to see ourselves as a protector, as a defender, as a provider for the wife, just as Christ was for the church, but never as the dictator. Never as the tyrant of our wife. We are not to demand or to force our wives to submit to us, but rather we are to be someone that they can choose and that they can want to submit to. And so in Colossians, Paul summed all this up again in a a simple package by simply saying, Love your wives. If we spent more time loving our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, we would sacrifice ourselves for her. And yes, we could see how this could obviously be something physically done, but much more necessary in our lives and in our day. We need to sacrifice ourselves in the ways that we, in the things that we desire, in the things that we want. And you know, this trait, it's put down so much in the world today. People look at this, people look at this trait, and they say, that guy's whipped. They look at this trait and go, that guy must have turned in his man card. He didn't get his porch pass to leave the house today. This trait is incredibly mocked. But to the Christian, we must see this trait as a wonderful opportunity to reflect Christ in our relationships, especially with our wives. Maybe it involves giving up a hobby, giving up something that we really enjoy, or giving up time spent with friends to show her that more important than these things is her. She's most important of all. But then sometimes we have the question, well, what about if I, when I do that and she just still doesn't see things my way? She doesn't see things the way I see them. What do I do then? What do I do when she doesn't get it? Well, I would ask you, number one, to remember what about all the times that you didn't get it? What about all the times when you didn't see it God's way? What did He do? What did He do in those instances? Did He send a flaming bolt of lightning down from heaven to get your attention? Did He just kind of reach out here and smack you around a little bit until you understand what you did wrong? Or did He slowly and patiently and lovingly send someone into your life to teach you and to help you understand maybe something that you're doing wrong, maybe help you understand something that you're doing good, and to be an example to you as to how you ought to live. Yeah, that's how it's happened in my life. I can't remember too many instances of lightning and and of, of outstretched palms, but I remember a whole lot of instances of love and a whole lot of instances of people who were much wiser than me coming into my life and showing me a better way. And so husbands, instead of getting mad at our wives, instead of getting bitter towards our wives, we are commanded to do just the opposite of that. In First Peter chapter three, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, First Peter chapter three, and in verse seven, we are told to be understanding of our wives and to show honor to them. We'll flip over to First Peter chapter three again. In verse seven, it says, "You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone <clears throat> weaker, since she is a woman." and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This passage saying, this, husbands, we need to learn what makes our wives tick. We can be very guilty of not understanding our wives, and so therefore it's po- impossible for us to live in an understanding way if we've never taken that time. Taking that time to get to know the needs of our wives, and not to focus on things that are done wrong, but maybe focus on why the thing is that is done wrong is done. And more important than that, focus on what's done that's right. Focus on what's done that's worthy of honor. And once you've understand these things and you notice these things, start honoring. Start honoring our wives. Don't focus on mistakes, but praise her for what she does well. Holly and I, for example, love. Absolutely live to pick on one another. In fact, so much of our time is spent doing this, and it's just, it's just a part of our personalities and our relationship together. We don't just love to laugh with one another. We genuinely love to laugh at one another. It is just something that works for us. But I would never, ever consider publicly ridiculing her and dishonoring her. And I think most of us, most of us would say, well, of course. I would not do that but what about when we get into the sanctity, the protection of our homes? In these cases, when we are away from prying eyes, do we show honor to our wives? One of the places where it can be the most beneficial, when they know that it's not a persona that we're putting on, but it's our true feelings towards them that only them and God can see how do we treat our wives. This passage says we should be treating them as the weaker vessel. I want you to notice it doesn't say she is a weaker vessel. So treat her accordingly. Now, in fact, in many cases, it is the woman and not the man that is is spiritually stronger and oftentimes even, even leading the family. Peter here was instead saying, husbands, treat your wives not like some cold, hard, rough piece of steel, even though she has that strength. Treat her as something precious, maybe like a piece of china. Treat her as something that is beautiful and that is worthy of being covered in honor. This relationship between the husband and the wife, it molds and it supports the relationship of the family. And so it is in completely understanding at this point why Paul continues. And he transitions between the relationship from the husband and wife and into the relationship between the parent and the child. And so we move to verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents. Are you listening, children? Because right now... And you know, you probably oftentimes think, well, Kyle's just up there teaching to the adults and preaching to the adults, and he's not saying anything to us. Yes, I am. Every Sunday, every Sunday, I hope you hear the words that I'm saying because I am preaching to you. And I am telling you that God's messages that He has for you. But not just our children, also ourselves. We all have an important reminder here that children are to be obedient to our parents. Especially... Excuse me, especially as it is discussed in Ephesians chapter 6. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. Look in verses 1 through 3. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, we read, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on earth. One of the first things I want to point out here is is what it says here, for this is right. Children, it's important for us to remember, all of us, it's important for us to remember, there will never be a time when it is right for us to disobey and dishonor our parents. Parents give to their children so much that makes this right in the sight of the Lord. Parents give their children life. You remember your parents reminding you of this, at least I do. I brought you into this world it was oftentimes followed up with the promise or the threat, I don't know which one's best accurate of it, that I can take you back out of it. Children, remember that your parents have given you nourishment. Those meals that show up in front of you, they aren't magic. And they were most often probably prepared for you. They were maybe even purchased for you. But either way, regardless of the method, the meal was produced for you so you should be Thankful. And children, you were given instruction from your parents. And this is incredible. It's incredible, the instruction that we have to give our children. Like just the other day when when we gave the instruction to our middle child, Easton. I'll say this since he's not here with us right now. To put your clothes back on in public. Incredible instructions like that. To the instructions that are invaluable. Instructions that come from the word of God. If children don't learn obedience in the home first, under the care of their parents, it's highly unlikely that they'll be able to apply it in other places, such as in school, such as in society, or even to God. And again, we need to remember that this is talking about commands described as in the Lord. So no, a parent demanding their children to do something which is against God's will shouldn't be something that they feel obligated to obey and enter into sin. And all this is said, not so, again, parents can get you under your thumb. It's not so that parents can have complete control over, over the children. But it says it is done so they can have a hope for a long life on the earth. Now, of course, there, this is a generality. And we understand the possibility of bad things happening to good people. But generally speaking, the instruction of parents is not to see how miserable they can make you. It's not to see how they can suck the fun out of everything on earth. It's so they can provide you with the knowledge to make good and wise decisions. But that being said, parents, we must commit ourselves to doing just that. We must commit ourselves. And of course, we want our children to be healthy. And we want to instruct them to do things like eating healthy. We instruct them to brush their teeth. We say, wash your hands. Of course, we want them to be smart. So we we tell them to try hard in school. Listen to your teachers. And maybe even we work with them in their schooling. But what matters most in this life? Is it their health? Is it their, their education? Could it be possible that we have placed things in a higher priority than God? This culture has done a great deal of of emphasis on our children. We place a great value on our children. We run them all over town to get them to sporting events, to scholastic events. We spend hours every night working through homework and maybe even taking time off from our jobs to go with them and chaperone them on a field trip. We invest so much in their secular lives. And this is a good thing. This is a very good thing for us to do. But we need to ask ourselves, do we do it at the cost of their souls. What happened to the family that would open the Bible every night? And would spend some time teaching their children about God? What happened to the family that would make sure that their children had every opportunity to, to gather together with other, sister, other people in Christ and worship? And to create those bonds that stretch much farther than just Sunday and Wednesday? What happened to the families that would plan on taking their kids to gospel meetings and VBSs and making sure that they spent time in study and in admonition and in praise to God? Nothing. Nothing is more important in the lives of our children than God. Nothing. We must be training them and teaching them every day about God. And so in this, Paul has these instructions for us. For fathers especially, he says do not exasperate or do not provoke your children that they be not discouraged or as the NASB says, that they do not lose heart. If all you have ever heard was how you messed up, if all you've ever been done is giving instructions that you felt were impossible for you to accomplish, how would you feel? Would you be ready to give up? Would you feel like there's no way you could ever be good enough? Would you feel that... You're worthless? This is exactly what Paul is talking about. For fathers, he says to avoid this, it's similar to what Peter said to to husbands with their wives, we must have an understanding and be understanding with our children. And that means we must be working with them. We must be getting to know them. We must be spending time instructing them. We must be spending time guiding them towards a healthy relationship with God. And we must remember who they are. We must remember that they are souls. They are souls not that we created. They are souls that God blessed us with. And that they are going to make a lot of immature mistakes along the way. But we need to be there, patiently encouraging them, loving them, and not being overbearing on them as fathers. But likewise, mothers are given a command. Excuse me. Mothers are told to love your children. Look over in Titus. In Titus chapter 2 in verse 4. We read and this is talking about instructions for elderly women to give to younger women says that so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love the, to love their children. <clears throat> Unfortunately today I think it's obvious to look out into the world and see that women today aren't getting this training. We see abortions. We see abuse. We even see the selling of children happening in this day, happening in this country. These aren't things that are on the far-flung edges of the earth. And while we look at that, we go, that's the very, very dark side of the absence of of this teaching. We understand that all mothers who, even for intent, all intents and purposes, love their children, can still fail to instill in them their need for obedience to the gospel. Maybe it's through an unsubmissive attitude that they erroneously teach their daughters or even their sons what a wife looks like. Or maybe it's because their desire to be best friends with their children that they overlook problems and they justify behaviors. Parents, if we truly love our children, We will discipline them when they need it. We will instruct them on how to be Christians. We will pick them up and encourage them. And we will take every opportunity to immerse them in the church, in the family that Jesus created to help them get to heaven. And so Paul's instructions to the Colossians here still hold so much value today as they did in that day. Whether it's in our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with a parent or a child, our relationship with an employer or whomever, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Have your relationships been what God would have them to be? Do you maybe this morning understand and think that you need to take some time to correct some things? Maybe in your marriage, maybe in your parenting. Maybe as a child to your, to your parents, Satan would want you to think today that it could never work. Satan would want you to think today that things can't change. He would even want you to think that the problem isn't mine. It's theirs to change. But God would have you know that you can make a difference. You can make a difference in those around you. And oftentimes that difference starts with yourself. Making yourself more like Him. Is there some way we can help you this morning to do that? Is there something that you've been struggling with that you would like the saints here to to, to pray about and to help you with, to work together to build you up? Or maybe you've realized, this, all this talk of relationship, you've realized that you desperately need to submit yourself to a relationship with God. Here in just a moment we're going to sing number 269. We're going to understand that nothing, nothing could have drawn us close without the blood that He shed and the sacrifice that He made. It is Jesus on the cross for us. But He made that sacrifice. He he spent the currency that we never could could have afforded. He paid the cost, taking all our sins on that cross. Do we hold that payment as something that it was just a waste of His time? A waste of His blood? Or do we truly value? Do we see the beauty? Do we see the significance of His sacrifice? And does that draw us closer to Him? Draw us to Him into a manner that we want to submit. We want to give everything over and trust in Him. That He will will be there for us. That He will pick us up when we fall down. And that He will carry us through to this glorious kingdom. We are a family. We love one another. We are here to help one another, and we would love to do that this morning in whatever way that we possibly can, but it starts with you making the first step and letting us know how we can help you. If there's something we can do this morning, I would encourage you, please come forward now as we stand and as we sing.